Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Today's guest on the Mike Wise Show is a Hall of Famer who has done everything you can do during an NBA career including for one night driving a cab during the playoffs. <laughs> he's Celtics great Dave Cowens, and he's up next. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Yes, Darlene, many of my guests are wise-asses, and most are also wise men. Dave Cowens qualifies as the latter, and we're really to have him, we're really happy to have him joining us today. Uh, basically, our, fa- our first Celtics Hall of Famer on the broadcast. How, how are you, Dave? I'm doing fine today. How you doing? Good, good. Yeah, I know you're living in Maine these days, correct? Yeah, that's true. It, it, what a beautiful place. Are you up in the mountains? Yeah, by Kenny Bunkport? Where are you? Well, um, I'm in southern Maine, not too far from Portland. I live, oh, on, yeah. uh, I live on Sebago Lake. You fish still? Uh, not very much, no. All right, all right. Because I was gonna, I was gonna try and get up there and do some bass fishing or something with you, but you know they got a lot of nice places. People do a lot of fly fishing up here, and they got the, you know, the the landlocked salmon, and they they got lake trout and things like that in the in this lake. You know, oh, that's a big lake. It's a big lake. Mm. Uh, Dave Cowens, I'd be remiss if I didn't start the program by asking, you know. uh, John Havlicek, Hondo, passed recently, um, and I know every time someone passes my age anyway, it puts me in touch with my own mortality. Did, did that affect you at all? Well, yeah, you know, we've lost um, now JoJo uh, White who um, and John Havlicek, and I talked to Don Nelson about it. I said, Don, I said, these two guys, they, they were good to their bodies. They kept in good shape. I said, how are we still alive? We tried to kill ourselves numerous times all through our lives. And, um, you know, and he just started laughing. He says, that's true. You know, so you you just don't know, Mm. you know, and and you're right. It does, it does, um, get to you and start, get, start you thinking about, you know, what is it that's going to get me? What's going to get your wife, you know, And, and, but the time's coming. My dad told me one time when he was going through an awful lot of things, I said, yeah, you're a pretty tough guy. And he looked at me and he said, you'll get your chance. <laughs> oh, <laughs> man. oh, boy. I, um, uh, I'm, when I, uh, 
I remember the the Willie Mays quote always when he was falling down at the outfield at the end of his career, and uh, they they the the writers walked into the locker room and, and they asked him when, when he was with the Mets at the end, Willie, what happened? Did you lose it in the sun? They were trying to make excuse for him, and he just looks at him. He says, "Growing old is a helpless hurt." <laughs> there you go. Yep. And I there thought, boy, that that's that sums it up. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, Dave Cowens, Celtics Hall of Famer. I, I think people forget that while you were part of those great 70s teams and you won two titles back then, you also played with Larry Bird uh, for one season. And the Celtics uh, people know that, and I'm sure a lot of basketball people do, but I don't think the casual fan knows. What do you think of the hick from French Lick showing up at his first training camp? Oh, he was prepared. The guy, he was um, uh, loved to practice, stayed in shape. You know, was um, uh, he just was a heck of a player. You could tell he had those types of instincts and skills that a lot of people really don't possess, um, especially at an early age. You know, he was, you know, one year older coming out of school, so he had a little bit of that maturity to help him make the transition from college to the pros, but you know, he didn't have to worry about, um, you know, the, the added um, media uh, scrutiny and, mm-hmm. and all the attention because he certainly had that when he was at Indiana State, you know, especially when they went when they went all the way to the finals of the NCAA. Yeah. So um, he, he was used to that and performing under the big lights. Was was there anything that right after the – right after he got there where you said, oh, this guy's going to be special. This guy's going to be real special. Well, you know, you just let things sort of happen on their own at their own time. And, uh, yeah. but, but, you know, the guy, um, you could tell right away, he was a great shooter and, um, he wasn't, he, you know, you wouldn't say Larry Bird was fast, but he was quick. He made quick decisions. You know, he was, he was, he had things going on in his mind and his vision about, you know, how the game should be played. Uh, where everybody was on the floor and he was very confident with the basketball more so than most guys his size at that time so he was a little bit of a a unique fella but you know he's about six nine he and i are about the same size um yeah he could play out on the floor he had had a post-up game so he had a very fundamentally sound guy uh, but yet had that uh, special those special um gifts um, you know, in terms of vision and smart guy knew what was going on and had the right attitude because he worked hard. He didn't take anything for granted. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, I think you hit, you hit it on the head. Bill Fitch used to say he had a Kodak when, when Kodak was actually a camera and, and uh, they had a company, you say he had a Kodak mine. It was like, he was always mm-hmm. shooting pictures in his head and he could see everything. And You're I right. think people forget about it. I got shoot. That's probably magic in him had that in common, just as just as well, much a as lot they of had. players do. Yeah, anybody that gets to a certain level, they have that. They have that ability, you know, to sort of see ahead. It's in all sports and probably in in all areas of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Cowens is our guest. He's uh, shoot. I could go over his accomplishments. 20,000 times. I'm more into the old stories than anything. When um, uh, I, I don't, you probably don't remember this one, but <clears throat> because it was more um, a part of someone else's life than yours. But um, 
when I was writing Shaquille O'Neal's autobiography and uh, basically ghostwriting it for him about 20 years ago, um, I spent a lot of time in Apopka, Florida with his parents, including his stepfather, Phil Harrison. And Phil Harrison, besides telling me some great anecdotes about Shaquille when he was little, he said, he goes, and I go, I said, you played, you were a pretty tough guy. And he goes, he goes, he goes, well, I, I thought I was good. And I go, what happened? He goes, well, one day in New Jersey, I'm playing pickup with Dave Cowens and he knocked my teeth out. <laughs> he said he took an elbow or something from you on the playgrounds of, uh, I don't know if it was Newark or somewhere in that area. And I'm going, you don't remember um, knocking out anybody's teeth, do you, um, outside of the NBA? Well, it that that did happen. I was uh, visiting a teammate of mine at um, in East Orange, and they had a playground that everybody went to in different factions, you know, different neighborhoods would come to this one place. And, um, you know, we were just playing, um, and um, all of a sudden, you know, a, a big fight broke out, and some guy was on my back, and I'm trying to get him off my back, and I'm looking around going, since I'm the only pale face in the in the area, I'm going. This this is not good. I'm. I'm but anyway, um, things worked out and uh, we survived. And so, so you. Then, so so he. You, the interesting part. So I had no the, idea that the reason it started was because I must have inver- inadvertently done something because, you know, um, he says I knocked his teeth out. I don't remember doing it. I don't know how it happened. And that's the way it is most of the time. If you if you do something like that, you don't even know you did it. And, um, but the, the funny part of the story was that when Shaquille came into the league, I think it was Penny Hardaway and some other guys at class, I was involved with the um, rookie orientation program for the NBA. It was when it was just starting and we were in these classes, it was a two or three day affair down. I think it was in Dallas, Texas at the time. Okay. And, um, we were in a room like a classroom and we had, a psychologist there and we had a you know an older guy and a younger newly retired guy and Shaquille and these guys were in my the classroom so you know we're after the class Shaquille comes up to me and I'm looking up at him he goes hey he says you knocked my dad's two front teeth out I looked up at him I said I said you're not going to hurt me, are you? <laughs> and he started laughing. <laughs> so um, that was that was the funny part of it. Oh, that's great. Phil Harrison yeah, had a yeah. story until he passed uh, about Dave Cowens. Uh, oh, that's great. So, boy, you, you almost start a race riot, and uh, years later, Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, my you, God, yeah. A race then, riot. It was me. It was one white guy in there. No. <laughs> <laughs> within miles you know i said well, yeah but i had my guys were there the guys that i was visiting with yeah. but you know it was um we, we you know it was just a, just a pickup game so you never know what's going to happen yeah i um i remember uh talking uh to larry one year about how he, he you know i said what is it like being a white guy in a black league and being a white star in a black league and he said you know it's like anything if if, if you grow six nine, and whether you're from Indiana or Kuwait, you know, and you and you work hard and you play, you you can make it in the league. And I I remembered at the time, um, obviously the NBA was was a fairer skin when you played than it is now. Billy Hunter, even the executive players director, and and Larry said at one point, like, if this league's ever going to take off, really take off, you need another American-born white superstar. 
I look at what's happened in this league and how much LeBron James and Steph Curry and all these guys have become crossover stars. And, and before anybody looks at their skin color, they look at the player they are. I don't know if you need, I don't know if you need it. I mean, it'd, it'd be nice just for diversity's sake, but I don't know if you need an American born white superstar anymore. Well, I think that's that, you know, uh, you have questions about that, about why there aren't, um, as many American-born white players, but you don't have to worry about that because it's an international game, and and uh, all the white people are from other countries right. that are in, the, in in this league now. I think I think I um I think there's only maybe 30 to 40 white players in the NBA from the United States. Yes, right now, you know, out of 450, so a country that you know as big as we are. Um, it's in, it's it's unique and it's curious as to why you don't have more uh, American-born white players in the NBA right now. I had a great conversation with basketball, even, no, even you're, in the college level. No, you're right. I had a great conversation with uh, Clay Thompson's uncle, who uh, his yeah. name's Andy Thompson. He's Michael Thompson's brother. He's been an NBA photographer forever. Great guy, and he he made a great point to me. They were I guess they were trying to do a a bunch of public service announcement videos a couple of years ago, and they couldn't find, um, and they're th- thinking, okay, we, we need to get a, a white player in one of these videos. You know, do, is there an American born guy that we could, and the only guy they could come up with at the time was Kevin Love. And, and, and his thing was, he goes, you know what the problem is? And I go, what's the problem? And he, he had a theory. He said, a lot of these parents that, uh, they get scared off because they see kids, um, African-American kids that spend so much time and are so good at this and it becomes part of their life, like almost like, you know, shoot, uh, East Indian kids might be spelling bee champions or Kenyans might be great marathoners. And he said that the the parents get scared off and they direct their kids toward other sports. And I told them, well, I got a nine-year-old. He's pretty good. He can play a little. I go, you know, I only played up to junior college, but and he says, oh, I want to be an NBA player, dad. And my instant thought is, nah, you can't do that, son. And he looks at, and Andy Thompson looks at me and says, why can't he? Like, well, Just let him go until he stops and he can do on his own. But the idea that you're sending all your, your your kids just to play lacrosse and every other sport where they might get a scholarship, you know, takes their dreams away sometimes. And you know, you're already you're giving into the notion that, oh, well, you know, that this is an African-American sport now. And I, I think there's something to that. Like, one, it's the great, as you know. It's the great game of integration in the world. It's probably done more for society, uh, bringing black and white together than almost any sport has. And two, uh, why, I don't even know why they even think about, you know, moving their kids around that early to a sport that they might excel at that other kids aren't. Well, I, you know, I, the incentives now are so great. Um, you know, when you look at the cost of what it, going to college or, you know, the potential earnings that um, an NBA player can make or, you know, baseball or football or anybody else that, you know, there's an awful, there's just a lot more planning, um, Mm -hmm. you know, at an early age for kids. Um, I know most of the kids, you know, when when the parents were not involved, you know, there was not this system of let's, get them advanced and put them on certain teams and have them play against certain players and develop them and this, that, and the other. It was, it was just that 
the 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 better players, if they wanted to, were going to excel, you know, just from a genetic standpoint or an interest or whatever. And um, but now it's um, it's 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 just too much. Uh, there's a lot of planning going on, and there's a lot more choices for kids, you know, that they don't have to play basketball. You know, just the advent of golf and and tennis, and everything's gotten so so big and so hyped in a way. Um, and so, you know, there's probably a lot of socioeconomic factors that go into it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what? I, I don't really know a lot about it. I just know that, you know, it's, it's gotten to this point where it's, um, it's, it's pretty much dominated by the, you know, the black players. And a lot of it is, you know, um, those guys are, working at it a lot more there's a lot more players that see that opportunity and they're working at getting better and making the sacrifices at a young age and and trying to get better i mean i remember i played in the rucker tournament and everybody talked about all these great street players i go yeah there's they're 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 good street players but they don't stay in they're not in the greatest of shape and they're you know they're kind of one-dimensional people and that kind of a thing. And I, you know, I wasn't terribly impressed with, you know, all the players um, that were in, in Harlem and all that from different places. But, you know, um, now I think you'd have more players sacrificing and, and getting good bodies and, and, you know, being disciplined and, and how they work out and getting stronger because you have to do that nowadays. If I hadn't done it when I was in college on my own, because we didn't have any strength people or anybody was doing anything. If you wanted to lift weights, you had to go figure it out on your own, and you were the exception. I mean, I did that all through college in the off-season only, and I didn't have any other of my teammates come with me. And and I was the only guy, you know, I had some guys that played pro. Wow. Um, but unless I would have, if I didn't do that on my own, I would not have been a pro player because yeah. I wouldn't have had the, the size and that the, the the strength to be able to compete on that next level. Dave Cowens is my guest, a Celtics Hall of Famer, and shoot, we we could spend hours with him, but he had, but he's got limited time because, heck, it's uh, it's my podcast, and uh, and he's got a life still. Uh, oh, Bruce, Bruce Burns. I'm just sitting going. there watching TV, man. <laughs> <laughs> Bruce Bernstein uh, is my producer, a longtime ESPN guy. But more important than that, uh, his life, was, he went into his profession like a lot of us did because we either fell in love with a player or a team and and we just saw, you know, how basketball, giving the good to, giving yourself to the good of the group could, could transform a person and a team into something you've never seen before. And 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 he told me he even said um, uh, he was talking about uh, uh, Hondo had told him that the best Celtics team of the early to mid seventies he thought was the seventy three team that lost to the Knicks in the Eastern Conference Finals um, because Hondo injured his shoulder when DeBusher nailed him on a screen uh, in the playoff series Knicks one hundred and seven. Do you agree with John Havlicek about that team actually being better than the seventy four and seventy six champs? Oh yeah, I mean, 
whoever we knew, whoever won that Eastern Conference Finals between us and the Knicks was going to win a championship. Mm-hmm. So I mean, we had to. I mean, we had to play without our captain, you know. And uh, it was it was. Um, and we battled the Knicks, and they had, you know, they had a lot of Hall of Famers on their team. But I think with John, it'd be like saying, okay, let's um, let's see if the Celtics with Bird and McHale and that. If you take Bird out of the lineup for half of those games in a series, you know, do you do you win? I mean, yeah. it really it really put the odds against you. But um, we sort of, in a way, almost just ran out of gas, and um, you know, yeah. the Knicks were certainly a good team, and they 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 beat us in that final game and went on to easily beat the the, the Lakers, who the year before had set the record for yeah, you know, 70, like, what, 33 games in a row or yeah. you know, only losing 13. 72, you know, we, only yeah, lost, yeah. we only lost 14 games that year. The, the, the team that has the best record in the history of the Celtics was that 72-73 team. See, we lost gr- one road game. That's we, great. We, we didn't lose – we lost more home games than we did road games. That's great. That you know year. why that's great? Because everybody always does this. Here's the five greatest teams – to never win a championship. And they always bring up that Kings team with Weber and Bibby from 2002. And they always bring up a, a, a Steve Nash team um, or, or a Knicks team with Ewing. I'm like, no, that Celtics team might've been the best team to never win a title. Uh, that, well, that answers- the record, if you just go by record, you yeah. would say, yeah. You know, if you just look at all those other teams records. Well, Bruce is still pissed that John Gianelli and his big-ass hair fouled the shit out of you in that 73 series, and the refs swallowed their whistles, and his emotional scars have yet to heal, and he's still bitter about it. I think he should seek counseling. Hey, hey listen, I, I I looked at my stats. I go, I, I, I averaged more fouls a game than free throws attempted, so I didn't get any breaks. <laughs> I'm glad you uh, – did you did you get the chance to see the Don Nelson Pete's on uh, HBO Real saw, Sports? No, I saw a little bit of it. I didn't see the whole thing, no. I talked he, to Nelly about it. Yeah. I said, you know, you're going into you, – were you in a witness protection program now? I can't even <laughs> recognize who in the hell you are. Oh, oh shoot. I, but he looks I, uh, good. He looks like he's happy and, and enjoying life. Well, he, you know, he lives in Maui, obviously plays yeah. poker, grows weed yeah. and smokes his share. I, I don't, um, um, well, I, I know he was a party animal back in Boston. Is that story true still about, you know, Jim, uh, Jungle Jim Luskatov is going to take his job one year and uh, Nelly pulls the all-time conniving teammate thing. And, hey, Jim, let's go out for a couple of drinks tonight. And and apparently he just got him so snockered he couldn't even make it back to the or, or if he did he was just shot the next day. True story. That or I not? don't know. That might have that might have happened happened way before I was there. But I think Lusky, I don't think Lusky and Nelly. I don't know if they ever played on the same team or not. I mean, I, Lusky. I'm not sure when he retired. I think Nelly came to the Celtics. I wonder late sixties. I'm wondering if I'm con- confusing Luskatov with another player. I'll, I'll double check. It could be. But, it uh, could but, be. Yeah, I don't put it way, past Nelly to do that. But it, uh, either way, it's it's not. It wasn't uncommon for Nelly to to go out and and have a few. Even during. Well, we the had a beer crew. We had our little beer gang. You know, it was um, Finkel and Kaberski. Kaberski. That's it. 
It's Kabersky. Yeah, that's the guy. He, that's the guy he he took out drinking like crazy. <laughs> well, he didn't have to. He didn't have to twist Steve's arm. I guarantee you. <laughs> oh man! I mean, like you said before, you, you do all this uh, damage to your body, but people back then didn't think that. You know, drinking was going to affect your body. Of course, people don't have the training regimens they do today. Um, it it it's such a serious. It's such a. I guess what I think about the NBA now is, as much as I love it, it's a year round league for everybody. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, it just the the investment. You know, when you're when you're talking about, I, I was looking at um, the fellow that the Celtics just got, and they they think he makes thirty seven million dollars a year. So, I mean, that's that's a number that's hard to fathom. So, I tried to break it down. So, I divided that number into 82 games and so that's like $450,000 a game or something like that so if you break it down if he played 45 minutes a game he's making $10,000 a minute so that that to me I'm going $10,000 a minute let's see what did I make I think I made about $12 a minute now this guy's about, a good player but he's not that damn good yeah I'm going that's Walker, a good player wow. but he's not that good i mean he's making 10 grand a minute i made 12 dollars a minute <laughs> think about that See, who That's makes ten thousand dollars a minute huh? is that right you made you made 12 dollars a minute well i my first contract i made ninety thousand dollars so if you and divide that in you know in half when you're paying taxes so i'm making about five hundred dollars a game he's making four hundred fifty thousand dollars a game Oh man, that oh, that's that's insane. Uh, I, I mean, so that's the way it is. But you know, I don't begrudge them. Um, you know, and the thing they got going now with you know they're talking about how the players sort of started with LeBron um, uh, picking and choosing who's going to play with who, yep. almost taking the place of the general manager. And and I don't mind that. But the problem is, is that it, on the flip side of it. If that pairing doesn't work out, there's no repercussions for that player and those players to join with the team. If you're the general manager and you put together a roster and it doesn't work out, then he's held accountable, but, you know, and maybe he gets fired. But there's no downside for the players to do what they're doing now. You know, they're oh. sort of usurping the, the general manager's role, you know, and putting players together. But, I'm yeah, I'm completely with you on that one. You see what I'm saying? There's yep. no, it's like let somebody do their job, and then you know they face the consequences if it doesn't work out. Nowadays, when the players do these things, they they don't they never get a docked in pay, or they don't get fired based on those administrative decisions. Well, Jeff Van Gundy told me when he was coaching Patrick Ewing in the '90s, he said, "You know, what I found out is, and I love Patrick, but I had to tell him what he needed to hear instead of what he wanted to hear." And he said, "But I'll tell you this," he said, it, it, "The best thing you can have as a coach in the NBA is a great relationship with your best player." Now it's gone beyond that, Dave. It's it's gone to the fact that the best thing you can do with the best player is give him total control. And to me, that's I'm not saying it's turning the um, the inmates are over, you know, given the inmates, the warden thing at the asylum. But I feel like there's something to be said for, you know, a lot like Pat Riley's been so successful and sure, Red Auerbach all those years because they knew that no matter how much money you made, people still wanted to be led and people still wanted someone in their life to tell them what they needed to hear. 
And I feel like all these guys now think that you're going to get a good player by just telling them what they want and basically being another employee of theirs. It's still a team game. And so you have to consider, you know, the people on your roster, but I, you know, and, and, and from a team standpoint, you know, um, if, and we all work off of each other and we're all part of each other's success or failure. And so if you have a really good player and, you know, the, all the players on the team, they want to win a championship. They see where all the assets are on that team. And all of a sudden, if one guy decides, you know, because he can make more money someplace else, he forces a trade. Well, then that sort of has an effect on all the other guys that are his teammates. So it's getting to the point where it's a lot more about self, and um, which I guess is okay. I guess it's part of the whole deal, but it's more blatant now. And um, it's like now it's translating into football where if a guy has a beef with the coach or whatever, he says, I want to go. And then he holds out and he does all these other things. Well, that, that has an effect on all the other guys on the team. Yeah, and, and they don't say anything, but it you know it it doesn't help in terms of creating that bond or that great experience you know and trying to win a championship because that's what they're trying to do. One of the reasons they're playing is to try to you know be lucky enough to be on a squad that has a chance to you know um, uh, win a championship or a trophy. Yeah, no, and, and I think it goes back to just the same feelings you had in a pickup game in, in New Jersey or wherever. Right. If, if you were on, you were trying to recruit your friends on the side to, I mean, I guess that's what you did in the summer, but nobody did that in the, nobody did that during the season. And if, and if you were ever on one of those teams, um, all you wanted to do was get, you know, and they were beating everybody else and keeping the court, you wanted to beat them. And nowadays these guys just want to be on the good team that wins by 40 instead of, instead of actually, competing against each other. One thing I love about what Kawhi Leonard did, uh, did was he moved to Los Angeles. He's basically put put the gauntlet down for LeBron. Like, hey, hey LeBron, I'm not afraid of you. I don't have to be your friend, and I don't have to bow to you. I'm going to be uh, playing right in the same arena as you. And by the way, we're going to have a better season than you, me and Paul George. I, I love that attitude. But you still, it doesn't, doesn't get away from your original um pretext of your your debate yeah. here is that it's still Kawhi decided that he wanted to leave Toronto and uh, you know he had all that fan base and all the things going on so it's all about Kawhi not about the team or the association and then listen I'm not I'm not one to support the man and the and the the, <laughs> the you know the owners and all that other stuff because you know how the business is they're making decisions based on what's best for them and you're trying to make decisions what's best for you. So it's it's gotten a lot more transparent and and there's a lot more power that the players have. And I and, and I don't mind that, all right, but you know, you still have to consider everything, I believe. Um, but uh you know, that's that's up to the players to decide how they want to do it. And I think the media and and, and people that follow sports understand that this is just the way it is nowadays the old formula you know like the Celtics you're part of our family we're going to do this mm-hmm. out of the other well the players don't need the teams as much as they used to because yeah. they're already they're already so rich and wealthy and independent you know they don't need that that's their brand it's all about branding 
And the teams follow, you know, they're going to throw a lot more assets into a guy that they're paying um, $10,000 a minute to play than a guy that's making $12 a minute to play. So that's why we didn't have all these different Mm -hmm. people helping out because there wasn't that big of an investment from the owner's standpoint. You know, we heard, I asked Red, I said, Red, can we get like a whirlpool that's not just the size for, you know, very small people to get into? We're all big people. He said, hey, it was good enough for Russell. It's good enough for you. That was the attitude back then. Mm. You know, now it's like, oh, I, oh, yeah, we'll do everything for you to make sure that you're happy and we're going to get the most production out of you and we're going to protect our investment. So it's, it's still professional sports. And even in college, it's still the same way. There's so much money involved for everybody. Dave Cowens, uh, beyond being a Hall of Famer and having a great career um, and and being this guy that, well, people forget he was only 6'8", but he had to battle Will, Kareem, all of them. Um, I look back uh, at Red, and, I mean, what a visionary. Uh, Chris Mullen came on in July, and I asked him what he thought Red would think if Nelly was partying, and Mully said Red would probably put some of that weed in his cigar and join him. And I, what are your favorite? <laughs> yeah, I know. What are your favorite memories of Red? Yeah, I don't know about said, that. Well, yeah, you're probably right. What are your favorite memories of Red? Well, Red was, um, you know, he was the guy, you know, and and Red worked. You know, he 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 was a loyal guy for his owner, Walter Brown. He had some issues with some of the other ownership that came, you know, came by and by, especially. I think John Y. Brown was the biggest dust up that he ever had with ownership because, you know, he, he questioned red and uh, red didn't like that. And um, red got extremely lucky when, you know, he, he got Russell and Russell turned out to be the kind of player he was, um, you know, a transcendent player who was a lot more skilled and athletic than a lot of the other guys that were playing in the NBA at that time, him and Chamberlain. So, you know, you only, you only hear about, you know, um, the rivalry of Russell and Chamberlain. How come you don't hear about the rivalry of Russell with all these other guys in the NBA that he played against? You know, uh, I mean, he played against Walt Bellman. He played against Willis Reed and some other guys, but um, I, I look at the players that I played against in the center position. I'm going, damn, I played against a lot of guys that played in the hall of fame. Oh, you know, in the Hall of Fame now, you know, in the 70s. Um, and um, so the competition got a lot stiffer, you know, um, as time went on. But Red at that time, he knew what he was doing in terms of how to talk to people. He was very good at being very simple, didn't make a lot of long speeches. You know, it wasn't a lot of blah, blah, blah. It was just, you know, go out, do your job. And, um and he kept it simple. And I think all the players really respected that. And they knew, and he was very upfront about it. He treated Russell different than he treated everybody else, you know, but Russell was producing for him all the time and he was the guy. So, you know, all the other players respected that and they went along with it because Red was open about it. He ex- he explained it to him, you know, he didn't hide it from him. Well, and I think uh, the legend had it that when when you, they took you number four overall in 70, Russell convinced Red that you could play center at 6'8". 
And, and well, I they, at, he didn't, he wasn't involved in the selection process after they drafted me. I was down at Red's basketball camp, um, which was mandatory to go if you're a rookie. Um, you went down there and uh, Russell was there because he had only been, I think, two years out from retirement at that time. But well, the one, the one uh, that cut so he was down there hanging around, huh? No, no, that was that was the Maurice Stokes game. This was Red's Red had a kids camp down. Oh, that's uh, right, Camp Millbrook, I think it was, yeah. and on the Cape and. Um, yeah. So we would go down there and sleep in the cabins and all that stuff. And we would play. It was all outdoors. Um, and Russell was down there just visiting Red, hanging out, I guess. And so he asked Russell to watch me play in the in the pickup games against all the other counselors that were working there. And uh, that's when Russell told him, he said, don't, don't, you know, he, don't, don't tell this guy where he's got to play. He'll be fine wherever he is. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's that was what that was not, oh, not that's, before the draft oh that's great that's a good great story i think you and bill are the only players to win the mvp but not be first team all nba which is just a crime in my opinion well there's um you know one of the things one of the things that aggravated me um i, I didn't aggravate me at the time because i didn't know any better when i look back at it our my rookie year we had um you know we 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 made good strides in terms of our W wins and losses. Um, there were four divisions, four teams in each division. And the league rule said that you had to have two teams from each division go into the playoffs. Well, we, the Celtics, we came in third in our division, and Knicks and Philly beat us out. But we had better records than Atlanta and Baltimore. They went, They got to play in the playoffs. So – we had the third best record, but we didn't get to play in the playoffs. Uh, nowadays, it wouldn't have happened. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, so it's like, you know, wh- wh- why? So that's why I go, you know, administration, it, it wasn't really fair because you talk about wins and losses, the better team should be able to move on, but they didn't have that um, rule back then. Mm. Dave Cowan's got a couple more minutes with me. I'd be remiss if I also didn't ask him about the uh, NBA Retired Players Association. I kind of started writing about this in the early 2000s when I moved to the New York Times or the Washington Post. And I remember Earl Monroe telling me a story about um, being broke, uh, down on his luck, and he had help from another player. And, and, And then I started learning about other players that had helped other players. And I talked to Cal Ramsey, the late Cal Ramsey now, a lot about it. And you got involved in it somewhere around that time and have been really active. 92. Was it 92? When we founded Oscar Robertson, I I got inducted in the Hall of Fame in 91. And so after that, at that particular event in Springfield, Oscar came up to me and told me about what him and Archie and Dave Bing were talking about in terms of uh, starting a players, a retired players association for some of the reasons you're talking about um, to help a lot of players, you know, insurance and these different things. Um, And so that's when he asked me to be involved. So then we've actually founded it in 1992 and Dave DeBusher, you know, got involved in that. So we were the five people involved in, in getting it started. 
and I look back on it now, and one, it's come such a long way. You even got WNBA players in the association, which I think is great. I almost feel like they need a union at some point because um, there are a lot of players well, out there. We collect there. a bargain. We collect a bargain just like a union does. That's why we formed to begin with, to give us some numbers that have some clout to be able to talk, to get, uh, you know, some funding from the NBA or from the um, the PA or from any, any other partners that, you know, in the community, uh, business partners and, and whatever. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that we did it. So we are a little bit like a, a union. We're a membership organization. We have about a thousand members now. Um, and um, so, so we, what happens is that what a, our relationship with the NBA is very strong. They understand that, you know, we, we do have some clout and we can help them, you know, um, because we speak well of the NBA. And we yeah. speak well about promoting the game of basketball itself. Well, I, I just like the people that are in need, you, you help. I mean, I can't tell you how many players, some of which don't want to be named, that have come up to me over the years and said, I don't know where I'd be without these guys. And it's almost, it's like, uh, you know, they talk about 12 step groups helping people. Well, this is a, this is a, this is like you're walking into a room of a thousand people in chairs and they're talking about, okay, yeah, I'm set, but this person's not, and we need to help them. And I, I don't know. I even like, I, I saw a thing of Dante uh, West, the guy, the kid that played with, yeah. LeBron and he's there's a video of him and he looks mentally ill he's on a sidewalk in Houston all I'm thinking is man I don't know how much they got in their uh, endowment right now but the retired players could reach him and get him into a program and get him on medication who knows at least he's got a life uh, well, what we what we do is you know um, instead of going case by case you know what we try to do is just give give have a revenue stream Okay. You know, um, based on royalty payments that come from the partnerships that the NBA has with all their different groups um, that do video games and all the other things. So if a, one of our players, a uh, retired player, is involved in that video, there's royalty money that comes through us and we send it to the player. We also try to help through the Dave DeBusher Scholarship Program to help them with their kids, you know, to go to college grant scholarships and things like that and and so that helps and we're you're talking about you know a couple million dollars a year um mm -hmm. and uh, first in scholarships and then we have now um through the generosity of the player association and the nba we have um very affordable health care through united Healthcare and a plan that you know if you played like i did 10 years I'm so lucky that, you know, I'm 70 years old. I now have a health plan that I can go any place. I don't have deductibles. It's all free. I don't have premiums or anything. So when we first started it, that was the, one of the biggest issues was that players could not get affordable health care. And that was leading them, you know, that's one of the biggest things you need. I mean, we talk about health care all the time in this country, but that was one of the things we wanted to do for our former players. So finally we got that after you know, 20 years, we finally got to that. So that's the kind of things that we've been doing. And then just to continue the brotherhood of, you know, the players that we've all gone through the same thing at the same time. And, you know, we have a lot of players that are in their sixties and seventies. And our challenge now is to make sure that these younger players 
they come in and they stay, they get involved as well, you know, because the NBA finds it pretty hard to um, promote and market somebody that's been out of the league for 50 years. They need that young, those young people, you know, that the marketers are interested in, in putting in their games and their, you know, and all their, their materials and whatever. Yeah. So, you know, that's one of our challenges, but now, you know, now these guys, <clears throat> they, they've made a lot of money. They have their own foundations and they're doing their own thing. <clears throat> so we've sort of got to change, you know, and say, Hey, what, what are we doing? That's going to interest these players to get involved with us. Yeah. Almost. That's a great point. Like if, if, if you're pretty much your own CEO of your own corporation as a Kevin Durant or a Steph Curry or somebody, how do you, well, anybody, I mean, you don't, you don't have to be them. You can just be a guy that's been making, you know, six, eight million dollars a year, yeah. five million dollars a year. And they're if they've done the right things, they they don't need anything. You know what I mean? They're set. That but I think doing you, it the right way. But I think you had it on the head. Brotherhood. They you could say all you want about promoting young players. There's something about when when they bring you and some of the old Celtics out to the court a few times a year. And people look and, and, and they see their whole lives um, in in the players on that floor as memories, as part of their the, the bond between their sons and daughters that they brought to the games. I, you know, I, I'm a big proponent in the more you remember your past, the better you can sell the future. And I and I think the NBA has that balance pretty, down pretty well. But sometimes I wonder. I really well, do. you know, I mean, for us. You know, we now have on our board, we have a board of 10 uh, retired players, and we have Grant Hill, Karan Butler, and now Sean Marion, and Cheryl Swoops just got elected. Um, We have Dave Naves, uh, Johnny Davis, um, Jerome Williams, you know, so, and and Sam Perkins. So we have, you know, we have a younger group now um, getting involved, and that's what it's going to take because the players of the day, relate more to Grant Hill than they do to Dave Cowens because they never saw Dave Cowens play. Most of my games were not on TV. And most of the, a lot of tape of all our games has basically been destroyed or lost or taped over or whatever, you know? So um, it's, it's, it's what the today's players when they retire and how they can, how do they relate to us as an organization? So we're sort of retooling our vision in, in, in the things that we offer to get these guys in, in, um, excited about being involved in the Retired Players Association. couple more for Dave Cowens. That's it. I can't watch the game sometimes because all they do is shoot threes anymore. Am I too old or is that just the involvement of the game? I look at your position. I think, shoot, Dave Cowens, they might have legislated his position out of the game the, the way the game's played now. I mean, I, I just I love the inside well, outside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the people like it, all right. From a, from an, ex, you know, people like to see the one-on-one confrontation. You know, the shake and bake, and everybody gets all excited about it. somebody trips up when the guys, you know, dribbling side to side and doing in between the legs and all the other things. So that's 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 um, Harlem Globetrotter type basketball. You know, it's showmanship. And the problem is, I think sometimes showmanship has taken the place of sportsmanship. Mm. And so you get too much of somebody trying to make somebody else look bad in front of everybody 
and then pounding their chest about it. I, I particularly don't like that, but that's sort of the way that sort of feeds on itself. And so people get motivated. I watch little, somebody will put on a, uh, some, you know, a sports show and they'll show some kid that's eight years old shaking and baking some other eight year old and he falls down and so everybody in the stands jumping around like it's a big deal. I don't particularly like that, mm. you know, because it's too, it's too individualistic um, in a team sport. But that's that's the old school mentality. Like you and I, we're thinking, you know, you're part of the group. But that's all changed because the NBA now markets the player, not the team. It used to be the Boston Celtics with Bill Russell. Now it's, you know, LeBron James and the um, L.A. Lakers. It, you know, the players first, and that started, you know, right around when Bird and Magic Bird and Barkley and Jordan and all that stuff was going on. You know, it, it became it's easier to market the player than it is the team people maybe relate to the player you know a little bit more than they do the team at some you know at some point in time i don't know but it it it's tended to work because you know the nba is um you know now it's um, just an international yeah. monster and they're making so much money that they can afford to pay the guys what they're paying them when you were when you were playing um i think i, I want to say at the end of uh um or i'm sorry i can't remember what year it was i think it was when silas was traded right before the start of the 70s yeah you became did you become a cab driver that year no 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 um i just did a cab driving thing one night and it was while we were in the playoffs playing san antonio um oh that's right three yeah, it was just a one-night thing that I did with a buddy of mine who came up to, to see one of the games. But um, that was, you know, you go back to then. It, you think you had a best – you play a whole season and you get into a best of three. And you start out – if you're the if you got the best record, you start out in the opponent's court. So you play the, your first game down, you know, down – we play in San Antonio. So now you lose that game. Now you got to win two in a row at home. You know, so it was. Um, it's almost like now they have the WNBA. They have one round where it's just one game. Oh yeah, I know. Single yeah, elimination, know. which is, I mean, it makes it it makes it interesting. You know, um, they put a lot of pressure on, and um, it's you know, you don't have to wait and wait and wait. It gets more like the college scenario where if you lose, you're out. Uh, Dave Cowens has been great with us. There's one last one for him I got, and I don't even know if it's true but people might forget about it. I want to say a fan was being a jerk once in Houston. You went after him and punched him out, and then you had to go back to court, and they even subpoenaed some players. True story or not? Well, in Houston, um, that used to be a wild – the, the whole Texas trip used to be a wild, uh, wild, wild west experience, you know, back then. Um, but uh, there was a there was an issue – um, Calvin Murphy and I go for a loose ball out of bounds. Okay. And so, you know, we're just walking back on the court and this guy comes out of a seat onto the court and pushes me, you know, from my back, he just pushes me. And so I turn around and I knock him down. And so I think it was Charlie Scott. He comes out of nowhere, slides right into the picture and starts pounding the guy, you know, 
So he was said he was going to sue us, but they had jumbotrons, and they could see the guy on the thing. He was walking, walked out on the court and pushed me. I mean, what's what's he going to say? We didn't do anything to him. We didn't go into the stands. He came out on the court. Oh, you know. And then there was another time in San Antonio, where there was this. They had this one heckler right by the bench, uh, underneath the basket, but close to our bench. And he was on me and on me and on me, just one of those these guys that was a wise guy. Uh, and and um, so I stood up and I said something to him. And and some I don't know if it was Charlie or somebody else went over there and they got into a scuffle. And I mean, there was a lot of people involved. And all I remember, <laughs> it was so funny, we were talking about Steve Kaberski. Yeah. The, the police got involved. All right. So I'm looking over here and it must have been the policeman's gun came out of his holster. And I look over, I got to see Steve Kaberski holding the gun. <laughs> the policeman's gun. <laughs> on the court? Go, right on the bench, right by the bench. It was all going, I'm going, oh my God, this is crazy. You know, but um, yeah, you know, there used to be a lot of different things like that go on. And, um, yeah. you know, people, they would throw things from the stands you know, out on the court at players. Um, there's yeah. a, you know, you go back in the old days, it was the security wasn't as great as it is now. Well, and there were some all-timers, too, where people, you, you, you'd t- take the fight into the stands with a player and people would be like, ah, just a good fight, like it was hockey or something. <laughs> and nowadays, boy, all of a sudden, you know, you know, uh, yeah. Adam Silver is suspending think any, for I don't think any of the old-timer guys went into the stands or anything. It was, it was always something going on. You know, court. on, yeah. on the sl- sidelines and that, but um, yeah, that that thing yeah. that went on in the Indiana that one time that was that was pretty bad. That did, that was not good for our league at all. Oh yeah, the malice in the palace they called it. Yeah, yeah, when came out of it. Yeah, yeah. now, uh, well, I think yeah. even Ron Art, well, now Metal World Peace even regrets it. Now he realizes, you know, well, what was I doing at the time? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, he, he, you know, what are you going to do? But hey. Uh, that that was not that was not good, you know. Yeah, um, I'm going to leave you to your beautiful lake in Maine, in Maine, and uh, and a and a great retirement and a family that I know you're very proud of. Uh, thanks so much, Dave. Today, this really meant a lot to us. Um, we have a lot of guests, uh, but we we don't get to talk to living history uh, as much as we should, and you sure gave us that today. Well, you know, we, we, I tell you what, I had a good time playing, and, um, and and we didn't really think I didn't play actually for the money I played because I just love to play basketball, you know. Um, I didn't and you like loved the coach too afterwards. it, but I loved playing basketball. It was it was fun, and so when somebody would take the opportunity, you know, that I work hard for, and take an opportunity away from me for some whatever reason, I, I didn't like it because basically it was just. You know, you relish the time that you have to compete against the best in the world, you know, um, and uh, those things are, you know, in your lifetime is relatively short lived. Well, I think people forget that you came back in 82 and red traded you to Milwaukee for Quinn Buckner. And um, shoot, I know Quinn helped the Celtics win the 84 title, but I feel like you contributed to that third championship. And well, bottom line is, you should have got a partial playoff share if you didn't. Well, here's here's what happened is that year, and you'll never the Celtics never talk about this one, this playoff series, but that year that I got traded to the 
um, the team, 82-83. Yeah. Well, our our Milwaukee team swept the Celtics in the playoffs. Oh, that's right. So you that's never right, hear right? that, that the, year the, Celtics, the year before you, they won. The year before they won the title. That. And, that's right. That the year the after they won. they won. They won in 80. The year 84. I retired, they won in 81. And then yep. we played them in 82-83 and beat them four zip. And we had, you know, Moncrief and Marcus Johnson and um, – Paul Pressey? Um, no, no, that's later. That was didn't later. have Pressey. We had Lanier, Harvey Ketchings, Lister, Steve Mix. Oh, um, yeah. We had Junior Bridgman, um, Brian Winters, and myself and Nelly and Kittle were the coaches. Yeah. You know, and I didn't get to play. I had um, suffered a, a quadricep tendon injury, and Nelly, you know, said, no, I can't, I, you know, I don't think you're good. You know, I tried, but yeah. um, he wouldn't let me play. Um, and then we end up losing the next series to Philadelphia. They won it all. They won it all again. So now another injury is I think if I'd have been playing, I think I could have helped the team, you know, uh, perhaps beat the Philadelphia team. You know what I mean? But um, that's just a guess. Um, yeah. But you don't know, you know. You just you just don't know. But that's what injuries are such a big part of it, especially if they happen late in the season. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy – oh, I got you. Did you enjoy coaching the WNBA more than the NBA? I, I look at Bill Lane Beer, and he would have just – well, he was an annoying gnat to begin with, but he would have just pissed guys off in the NBA. And the, in the WNBA, he seems to be doing pretty good. Let's just say it was different. Okay. All right. It was different. You know what I mean? And we okay, had a, you know, exactly an expansion. You we had an expansion team. So, you know, yeah. we weren't going to be very good anyway. Um, yeah. And the way they – you didn't really get top picks at that. They, put you, they pushed you down. So – it was a whole different setup um, in yeah. terms of trying to get new teams equality, but you know it's it's just um, yeah the the ladies it's a, it's a it's a it's a different deal. But I enjoyed it. I love Chicago. Yeah. We lived in Chicago for a couple of years, and uh, my wife and I really enjoyed that. That's nice. All right, sir. Well, the next time I see you, I, I owe you um, either a beer or whatever you're drinking now. Because this has been more than it's been my pleasure. No problem. Nice to talk to you. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thanks again to the great Dave Cowens for spending time with us today. Thanks also to producer Bruce Bernstein, a shameless Dave Cowens fanboy, and our editor Ben Wolfen, who was born after Big Red retired. Please sample our other shows from Pure Hoops Media, such as Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozloff and Adam Stanko. If you haven't heard their show with Larry Brown, check it out. Bucket Sports and Blocks with Monica McNutt drops each Thursday. And the Pure Hoops podcast with BJ Armstrong and my friend Eric Newman drops each Friday. Listen, rate, review, tell your friends and enjoy. Until next time, I'm Mike Wise. I'm out! The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Oh,